You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and today we're going to have a topic that really I would rather not talk about here in this festive holiday season, but it's important that we do because it's impacting all of us. That is some very, very uh, critical uh, issues going on in the world that are impacting us here in the United States and are going to have a major say in the coming presidential election. The Iowa caucuses are only about a month away here. And uh, uh, I think it's very important for our listeners to get um, a grip on the importance of these issues if they're not already aware. And to do that with me, uh, there are a few better qualified to talk about these issues than Tom Squitteri, who's a longtime journalist, uh, I've followed him a lot uh, over the years. Uh, he's been to all seven continents. He's taught, he's written, he's written opinion pieces, uh, and he follows very closely these global issues. And I thought he'd be a good person to have on to share with our listeners what's going on and how it's going to impact us and uh, some of the threats involved, which we hope don't <laughs> do not come to pass. But Tom, thank you so much for uh, taking the time for being on today. Robin, it's a pleasure, and thanks for having me on your show. And, and as you said, it's a critical time, and I'm happy to share my what I can with you and your listeners. Well, as we as we record this, uh, President Zelensky uh, from Ukraine is in Washington. You're based in Washington, and I know you've been following this issue very closely, um, Pentagon briefings and all, but uh, um, he's here to try to influence our Congress to send more aid, and uh, it's a critical time. But um, do you think... Um, What's he? His trip is designed to try to influence some of the uh, skeptical legislators. Uh, do you think he's going to have an impact? And if so, how soon? Yeah, I to to answer that question first, I say no. I don't think it's going to be a soon impact. It's interesting, Robin, how uh, a year ago when President Zelensky first came to Washington, this is his third trip to Washington. A year ago, he was a rock star. You know, he was standing ovations. He everyone couldn't wait to talk to him to see him to wave the flag in all sorts of ways and now because of domestic politics uh, and raising concerns about what's going on in ukraine merited or not uh his struggle to get funding from the united states is really looking bleak at this moment um, this morning senator cronin of texas a republican of texas said who is not by the way a strong opponent of aid to ukraine said that uh, that might have to wait until January. Uh, in other words, more uh, aid for Ukraine. And what has been approved already, a couple billion left, uh, that sounds like a lot of money to you and I, and it is, but to, in the world of armaments, it's not much of what's left in the pot from what's before. Here's something that's very interesting to me. Uh, even though I live in Washington, D.C., I have a lot of friends and contacts like yourself across our country. 
A lot of people don't realize that the money that we quote unquote spend for Ukraine actually comes back to the United States um, in the form of uh, armaments manufacturers here. I don't know the percentage, but it's more than 90% according to the Pentagon of that money sort of flowing back to the United States. Um, so it's not like we're giving money to Ukraine just outright. Yeah, I, I saw where the president was was trying to take that angle. I think it was last week. I don't remember when, where he was almost making this sound like an economic economics program, where uh, our armaments uh, will be resupplied, and we're giving existing. I believe we're giving existing armaments to Ukraine, and we're kind of boosting ours up. So it almost sounded like a jobs program. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's an, it's a good spin by the president, and it's not entirely inaccurate. Again, anytime you know you're spending money on a, a work program to create jobs and manufacturers, uh, that does help the American economy. This is not me stating the position whether we should be supporting Ukraine or not. It's just a matter of right. fact. However, I will tell you something interesting, Robin. For months at the Pentagon, my colleagues who are among the best in our business have asked at various occasions uh, when a new announcement is made on aid for Ukraine, how does this affect U.S. supplies? In other words, what we're taking off the shelves is what we're doing and sending it to Ukraine. And we're given this elaborate uh, explanation of how there's studies done and we know we mean the Pentagon will not go below certain levels, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then last week during a briefing, the deputy spokesperson at the Pentagon was asked a similar question about the holdup for money, as you were just talking about. And she said, and we need this to make sure to improve our readiness. In other words, a complete change from what they've been saying months before. So, you know, the, the reporters happen to be cynical sometimes. What a surprise, you know. But the cynics in the press room were wondering, well, were you not telling us the truth all this other time? Or are you just saying it's now as a ploy to make sure Congress moves quicker to get money? Either way, it was a startling admission by the Pentagon. I know some Republican senators, I think J.D. Vance was pointing that out, uh, and on, on Twitter anyway, the concern that this was impacting our stockpiles of, of weapons. And um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it is kind of a startling admission that, that, that that's taking place. I guess there was just an article in this morning's Wall Street Journal that I read where European stocks are running dangerously low mm -hmm. as well, and they're right there. And this seems to be the threat that um, if we run really low and aren't be able to resupply Ukraine, that uh, Russia can overrun them. However, well, here, here, let me, if I, if I could just sure, address yeah. that, because yeah. you, you put your finger on something that's very interesting uh, from a military uh, strategy point of view. Uh, when the flow of weapons was continually coming from the United States and European nations, even at a lower level than Ukraine's when it was still coming, it meant that right now in, in the Donbass, where there's winter, and it's essentially World War I trench warfare, a little bit gained for either side here or there, the Ukrainians about a week or two ago crossed an important river and now have a beachhead, which is an important, small but critical gain. Now, what the Russians have been doing is attacking and falling back and that. If you're not getting ammunition to the Ukrainians, the Russians know that if they just do these attacks and fall back, the Ukrainians will be using their ammunition up and they're not going to get it anymore. See, so now um, the Russian military, which is dug in for the winter, except for what I just said, they can use the winter months, which are traditionally slow on the battlefield, 
to bleed the Ukrainians of their dwindling ammunition stocks. And that is a key difference than, say, a year ago in winter or, you know, even two months ago, when even though the Ukrainians have always been outgunned, meaning, you know, ammunition-wise and otherwise, they've managed to wisely target their resources, no pun intended. Uh, now those resources are ending, at least for the foreseeable future. So even a month delay could jeopardize the Ukrainian lines in what is now a sort of a stagnant operation because of winter. So this, the impact could be uh, a lot more immediate yes. than, than, uh, than say, waiting the winter out, that, that Russia is taking advantage of this already. There's not going to be waiting the winter out for Russia. You're right. Uh, they are getting, they have their supplies. They're getting supplies from North Korea and elsewhere that have not stopped. Uh, you know, those nations don't have to deal with the the, um, the dance of democracy, which is important. But nevertheless, in a return, real politic here, you know, they're just going to get the Russians what they need or what the Russians are buying or trading for, where the Ukrainians have to wait. And now I want to add that the European nations they don't have the problem of a delay because of internal politics. Their delay is what you mentioned a few moments ago in that their production lines were low because they were not engaged in this. And now they're ramping them up. But there's a question of the clock ticking in a different way, whether they can get their production up sooner rather than later to help supply the Ukrainians. And now to offset the unknown delay in U.S. resumption of support. With, with the odds right now, the polls anyway, showing Donald Trump at worst, 50-50 chance of getting elected president again, and what that means for his, regarding his position regarding Ukraine and, and Russia, um, seems like there's going to be incredible pressure on Ukraine to try to negotiate something here this year. Uh, it, and especially because their, their offensive that was planned this year was kind of disappointing. Is that what you're seeing here? Is that your source is telling you that kind of this is... You, to, to 2024 may be kind of the pitiful, pivotal year in this war. That's a really, uh, that's a that's a very important question, and I'll address it in a couple of ways. Let's talk about the counteroffensive that the Ukrainians did launch and did not live up to the, the desired hope of many. Their desired hope was to get to the Black Sea. It did not happen. Um, war is very complicated, and in part the delays in other equipment going to Ukraine early this year, delayed the start of that counteroffensive and gave the Russians time to really dig in in this whole Donbass area, which we talked about. I'm not making excuses for the Ukrainians. There's a lot of questions whether their tactics and strategy was the best one. I'll leave that for military strategists to decide. However, it did not get to the Black Sea, which is obvious. Okay. So that did increase the calls for, well, maybe a negotiated settlement. Uh, let me share with you and your listeners what I was told by folks in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, those nations that lived under the Soviet Union and Russian control for so many years, they don't believe in negotiated settlement would last at all. They would just, they maintain that it would just give Putin the opportunity to rearm, re-engage, and then continue again into Ukraine or wherever he wishes to go. They believe strongly, they're the most vehement of the European nations, that Putin must be defeated militarily and soundly. So I, I, I say that, I only offer that as, as a response to that part of it. Now, in regards to the Donald Trump uh, part of that equation, if you or any of your listeners could tell me exactly what Donald Trump will do 
from day to day, uh, they should be president, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I don't know what Donald Trump will do. He says he'll do a lot of things and he often does those things, but he often changes his mind. I know at the Pentagon when he was president, uh, it was a different atmosphere because those folks would go in there seriously, never knowing what Trump would tweet and whether or not that would be the reality or how they would have to react. He has vowed to take the United States out of NATO, for example. Uh, he has vowed many things in an international war. He seems very friendly to Putin as well as other uh, right-wing leaders in Europe, such as Orban in Hungary, and who are friendly with Putin. What does that mean to support for Ukraine? Who, you know, who knows? Before we turn to the Middle East, I wanted to touch more on one more issue and ask you because you've got outstanding sources at the Pentagon. But that's th this this hold on military nominations. Um, one of my guests with the Afghan and Iraq Veterans Association talked about this earlier, how how it impacted the morale uh, of the military. Yeah. So for, for background, Senator uh, Tommy Tuberville from Alabama has put a hold on on um, quite a few nominations. I'll let you go into the details because of objections to ab abortion policy at the Pentagon. That's been lifted a little bit. He kind of I think he gave up before. He, he was going to be outvoted. But what's been the, the impact on, on morale, but also more importantly, our readiness? These are a lot of important positions that were held up. Very important positions. And on the first part of your question on morale, it's been devastating to a lot of families uh, who have been in line. You know, their husband, their father or mother or have been in line for a promotion, not involved at all in the abortion issue or making policy at the Defense Department. They're doing their jobs and, you know, their families, uh, they're single individuals also, but, you know, families who need to, kids go, have to go to school and move for housing, these kind of day-to-day -day things that it's already stressful when you're a military family. So that has been bad for morale. There's also the loss of pay, uh, you know, that they were expected. Now, that issue is probably going to be addressed by Congress when it ever gets its time, probably early next year. There's been bipartisan legislation filed to um, uh, permit back pay to these individuals. In other words, um, if you were nominated for this position in February of this year, 2023, you would wait a month, in other words, March 2023, the normal time frame to get promoted, and your back pay would go to that time period. You know, uh, Ironically, Robin, Senator Tuberville signed on as a co-sponsor of that bill, <laughs> uh, the ironies. But about 400 or so were released finally, uh, 11 or 12 of the top flag and four-star positions. Also not as well known is that there are several civilian nominations in the Department of Defense that the senator has a hold on, and those are equally critical. I've been fortunate to travel with Secretary Austin on occasion as part of the rotating pool of reporters that gets to travel with them. And I've been able to be briefed with my colleagues um, by these really knowledgeable and caring and devoted public servants who are in these senior civilian positions. Some of them are leaving now because that's they signed up for two or three years and they want to get on their life. So their successors are now on hold as well. So we have this critical readiness issue that you talked about the heads of Central Command, for example, which is the Middle East, what we will talk about in a moment, um, you know, all these high command positions that still are on hold by Senator Tuberville, as well as these civilians. And and, and this at, at a time of such peril around the world, it's just inconceivable. But um, 
Um, anyway, uh, you're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson. My guest today is uh, journalist, uh, former teacher Tom Squitteri, who uh, uh, follows global issues. Uh, he's he's a mainstay at the Pentagon and uh, has, has written, um, well, visited all seven continents and written a lot about this over the years and been on TV a lot. A lot of you with a little gray hair like me probably recognize the name and the face. Um, we've been talking a lot about here uh, Ukraine and um, the, the the challenges there and, and the uh, President Zelensky's visit in Washington this week. I want to turn the page a little bit and talk about the Middle East, another flashpoint in the globe. It kind of it's like this took our attention away from Ukraine <laughs> um, when, when it happened, when the terrorist attack happened on October 7th. But uh, what are you hearing from your sources on the, the end game here? Israel is pretty well, it sounds like they've fairly cleared out, and correct me if I'm wrong, northern Gaza. They're moving in the southern. They're still hunting for some of the leaders of, of Hamas. But um, wh- wh- where's the end game, and how close are we to it? And is it going to be, I don't want to use the word tidy, but I mean, is it going to be something that that uh, will have a recognizable end game that, that gets back to something resembling peace? Well, if you talk to U.S. officials, uh, not at the Pentagon, but at the State Department and elsewhere, they'll say uh, they want the end game to begin in January at some point next month. Okay, the Israelis are not uh, acknowledging that request very well. So to address your question as when there may be an end game, uh, it depends on how tidy. That's a good word, actually, how tidy it is to be. Um, as you said, uh, Israel has a lot of control now on northern Gaza. However, they still have not gone into those tunnels in Gaza City. And, you know, there is talk of pumping water from the Mediterranean through those tunnels to literally flush them out to try to get those the Hamas terrorists out of there. There's uh, terrorists in the south that have mitigated, migrated, excuse me, with um, civilians who have fled the north for the south. There's that operation as well. So from a military perspective, um, you know, it's still a long, um, a long uh, road ahead, I think, to get all of the Hamas um, terrorists in in custody or or kill them that are in Gaza. And then, of course, Israel announced it's going to go on essentially a worldwide manhunt for the political leaders of Hamas, which is a different part of the end game, so to speak, you know. So if we just focus on Gaza, I don't think there's a plan afoot that that enough people have agreed on to what happens next when the military fighting is over. And that, to me, of course, is a critical issue. You know, you have, um, unlike Ukraine, which is a little bit more cut and dry, we know what's going on there. Russia invaded. Ukraine's battling for survival. People will disagree with that, who are perhaps Russian sympathizers, but that's pretty cut and dry. Whereas in Israel, you have, you know, Netanyahu was in political jeopardy before this. He's now in more political jeopardy, trying to do what he can to improve his political standing by using a war uh, to help him. The worst terrorist attack that many of us have seen on on Israel ever, um, you know, and the reports coming out of what happened to the hostages now. And, you know, no one can say uh, it was a it was needed not to go unpunished or dealt with. But what happens next is critical, Robin, uh, for the, the greater Middle East and whether Iran can continue its ascendancy now using this to strengthen itself all over the Middle East and how the United States can restore its credibility 
in the Middle East as well, because they're seen as just giving a blank check to Israel, um, and that does and it's being manipulated beyond the reality. It seems like, we're, and I hate to say this, uh, but but I think it's realistic. It seems like we're on the precipice of something potentially wider there. I agree uh, totally. Totally. It, agree. It, I mean, from Hezbollah uh, shooting rockets from the north. Uh, I just read about that. That's intensifying. And and one story that doesn't seem to be reported a lot, but was alerted to me again by the same person with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans, is there have been like forty some attacks on on American troops in the Middle East. Uh, and there haven't been any casualties yet, but we're one casualty away there from again uh, something uh, risking something wider. It sounds like. Well, let me address that. First of all, uh, that number you just cited uh, is very, very low. Uh, yesterday at a briefing, we were told that since October seventeenth, there have been, and this is as of yesterday, Monday afternoon, ninety-two attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. Uh, on November 10th, that number was 50. So you could see that in in almost under a month, it's almost doubled. You know, I know math is a little bit short there. 50, 45 attacks in Iraq, 47 attacks in Syria. Two of them came yesterday, and one in Iraq and one in Syria. You know, defense officials say, well, most of these attacks were success, successfully disrupted. Most failed to reach their targets thanks to our robust defenses. But I'm with you. I think the same thing, you know. Well, no soldier has been killed yet, thankfully, but it's going to happen sooner or later. One of these missiles will get through the defenses probably and, and kill somebody. Add into that uh, the attacks going on from the Houthi rebels in Yemen at ships. They hit a Norwegian tanker yesterday, and they're firing in a direction of U.S. ships if, if the Pentagon refuses to acknowledge that the U.S. ships are targets. The Pentagon doesn't want to say that any of these incidents are related to what's happening in Gaza, which really stretches credibility. Uh, there are all these groups are backed by Iran. That's the common factor that the Pentagon does acknowledge. Uh, 92 attacks again, Robin, since October 17th. Yeah, my, my information was a little outdated, but... Uh... I, I, I guess I, I want to ask you, uh, and, and uh, it, this is more of a political, somewhat of a political question, but the Republicans, some of the Republicans anyway, are saying that all the turmoil in the globe, the uncertainty, the uh, is is can be directly related to uh, Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I think even his supporters admit was a little haphazard um, and unwieldy, to say the least. Uh, since then, you've had the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. You've had the Hamas terrorist incidents. Uh, you, you've had continued Chinese harassment of, of other ships and shipping in, in, the, in, in the Pacific area. Um, do, do, you, do you see that? I mean, objectively, is this? Is, is, I want to say this as much as we wish the world was governed by adults and, and people with, with maturity. It seems like it's 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 the old play yard in school where the bullies will keep pushing until you push them back. There's a lot to be said for what you just said. There's a concept called gray zone warfare, which is essentially what Iran's engaging in now in the Middle East. You know, they're doing these attacks through its its proxies to see how much they can get away with. The United States knows Iran's behind it. Iran knows the United States knows, et cetera. But the United States responses are as they are, trying not to escalate it. Uh, they're seeing what they can get away with in the Middle East so far. Uh, look, 
the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, as you said, was haphazard and messy, and that's being polite about it. I don't, you know, the Pentagon can spin it however they want, but it sent the wrong signal uh, around the world to those who were looking for examples of U.S. weakness or lack of resolve. Uh, did it have a direct impact on what China is doing in the South Pacific? I think to a certain extent, maybe. Uh, China, let's, let's be fair about this. China was messing around in the South China Sea way before we left Afghanistan. Okay. Where I think the resolve is more of a, a thing is going back to Ukraine. You know, if you if the United States failed, China's watching what the response is to Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Uh, anytime uh, Putin sees an opportunity to push, he's going to push. Uh, I, I think that people who know Joe Biden realize that even though he's older, he has a great grasp of foreign affairs and that uh, his resolve, it, when he decides to be resolved on something, it's going to be resolved. Um, but I'm not trying to evade your, avoid answering your question. Um, it probably did play into the thinking of some who wanted to push the envelope. And, um, but it, it's, it's not the only reason. I want to close time. We've got about two minutes left. I, I'm struck. You, you use you use the term trench warfare in in the Ukraine Russia war, mm -hmm. which is of course known from World War One. I. I saw a World War One reference in uh, an article this morning about European red readiness. It seems like we're going back in time. Uh, it is. I, I guess I. That's just a comment. I guess I would frame it as a question: is that it seemed like we were moving beyond all this just, what, what 10, 15, 20 yeah. years ago. And here we are back to dealing with these types of things. Is there a, and, and we started building our military to deal with other concerns. And now, uh, like technology and terrorism, and now it seems like we have to go back and prepare for a ground war. It's very interesting you said that because, you know, there's always a, the, uh, the the thought that we vote, we prepare again for the last war as opposed to the next one. Um, you know, World War One uh, trench warfare is back in there, but just like in World War One, both sides are now looking for the weapon or weapons that will break the stalemate. Um, drones are the new weapon in warfare now, and that has to do with both ground warfare and air warfare. So th in that sense, we are moved beyond that, but. War is still war, and at this point in history, it's still manpower against manpower, not robots fully against robots. Um, the Marine Corps has undergone a, a, a really controversial transformation uh, to move it to be ready for the 21st century wars it thinks it may fight. Congress just included the defense bill, which is about to be passed, a review of that review. So, you know, uh, we, the Marines know that they have to adapt for the future. We'll see if the rest of the services do as well. The other, the other uh, uh, word that I saw used was an axis, uh, which has World War I connotations. <laughs> That's World War II, yeah. <laughs> axis of Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. So uh, yeah. a lot of kind of frightening parallels to uh, yeah. time 100 years ago. Well, Tom, thank you for, so much for being a guest today. Uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed this. I have. It's been a, a sobering discussion, but one we need to have. Uh, th these are things that are going on that uh, are directly impacting our country. And again, nobody better than Tom Squatteri, my guest today, to talk about that. Uh, Tom, thanks, and I look forward to having you back at some point. I do, too. Thank you very much.
Listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.